And go ahead and find Hosea chapter 11. Hosea 11. chapter 11. I hear a fire alarm chirping. The battery. Hear, hear that? I shouldn't have called attention to it. Now you will hear it, won't you? Take that one? Hosea 11 The pain and joy of parenting The pain and joy of parenting Of course this is not a passage on us parenting But on God being a, a father The pain and joy of parenting Everybody got one? Okay, let's pick up reading in verse 1 of chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can you give up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admon? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come uh, trembling from the west, they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Judah with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. You know, in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, as the Apostle Paul is addressing the church at Thessalonica, 
He describes in chapter 2 what his ministry was like among them. Uh, and in that description, he gives the analogy of a mother and a father. He says, I, I've, I've, in my ministry to you, I feel like a mother. And what is it about a mother? A mother is nurturing, loving, caring. Not only did Paul say he'd been like a mother to them, but he went on to say that he had been like a father to them, correcting them when they needed correction instructing them when they needed that and encouraging them when they needed that. You know, oftentimes in the Bible, analogies are used and they're used to communicate because analogies communicate in a profound way. You know, Jesus on one occasion said, I am the door. We know what he meant by that. Is he a piece of wood or a piece of metal? No. But he is the door into God's sheepfold, into God's family. He's the only door. He said in John 15, I'm the true vine. A vine that has branches and the branches bear fruit. So analogies. Now probably the most profound or shocking analogy in the Bible is perhaps what we encountered at the very opening of the book of Hosea. And, and what was the analogy being used back in those early chapters? Do you remember what it was? Yeah, Hosea was to go and take who as a wife? Gomer. And what was Gomer's occupation? She was a prostitute. And what was the analogy of? You remember the analogy? God, Hosea pictures God, his faithfulness, and Gomer pictures Israel. And how Israel had chased after other lovers, other gods and idols. So a shocking analogy there. Uh, here in Hosea 11, the Lord is using an analogy once again. He begins with the analogy of a father. I want you to see first of all tonight with me the early years. The early years. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bells and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I filled them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. And I became as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Uh, those early years... He begins by describing his relationship with his people in those early years. Now, folks, do you remember, uh, to the men in here, do you remember being a new father? And that new baby had just been born. There the baby is, and you're thinking how wonderful the baby is, right? A son or a daughter. What a miracle of life that child is. But then they become teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, perhaps you remember discipline. Maybe you had a child that regardless of whatever discipline you did, they were still a rebel at heart. It's like maybe you had a child that was like they were just programmed to go astray. They were, they were going to go their own way and do their own thing regardless of what you did. Maybe even in spite of very harsh or exacting discipline. 
Uh, maybe, maybe I'm calling to mind bad memories of that. You know, you're trying to get that child to go straight. They just won't go straight. Well, that's the image here in verses 1 and 2 of Hosea 11. And notice what he says in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now this depicts the early days. You would have to go back, for example, to Exodus 1 and 2 to see this. Remember in Exodus chapter 1 what we're told? There's a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. So you know right away, Israel's being set up for trouble, right? New Pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph. Hundreds of years have gone by now. And the Pharaoh went to his people and said, these Hebrews, they're increasing in number. I mean, they're, they're a population explosion. They're growing so much that, you know, they're going to outnumber us and join with our enemies against us. And so he put taskmasters over them. And made them slaves and their burden was heavy that they had to do. They had to build those cities for Pharaoh and make bricks for his building projects. And they kept growing. It's like the more they were uh, burdened or the more trials that Pharaoh put on them, the more God blessed them, the more they grew. And then he said to the midwives, hey, if they give birth to a son, kill him. But of course, the Egyptian midwives feared God and didn't do that. And you go into chapter 2 in the book of Exodus, and by the time you get to the end of chapter 2 of Exodus, it says they, they were under such a heavy burden that they were crying out to God. And God heard their cries. And God saw the cruelty of the taskmasters over them. God saw the burden of their slavery. And then of course in chapter 3 you find the call of Moses. God's raising up one who will be their deliverer. So th those early days, those early days when they were in bondage and they were miserable and yet God delivered them. God led them into the wilderness. God called them out of bondage and gave them freedom and was taking them to their own new land. And in those early days, God met with them. And, and remember in Exodus 19, the people met with God at the base of the mountain and, and they trembled. They were afraid. And uh, God gave them His commandments and the stipulations of being His people. And it's, it's explained here that that was back in the day when the relationship was young and they followed Him in the wilderness. There was love. There was devotion. They were committed to Him. And, and they pledged to remember that they would be faithful, but then they got into the promised land and they began to follow the ways of the Canaanites. And God judged them and disciplined them and it would work for a while, but then they would go right back to their same old ways. God called and called. God sent prophets to them. He called them back to Himself. But the more He did so, the more they turned right around and disobeyed anyway. They were like a rebellious son who simply never learns. He never listens, never learns. He's determined to go His own way. 
Uh, and you know, as a parent, you might, you might see a child like that doing things that you know they're hurting themselves. They're hurting themselves time and time again, but they do those things anyway. They're stiff-necked and determined to fail. And you know, you stand back as a parent and you see this going on, and, and it's heartbreaking. Because regardless of how much you try, they just won't listen. Now, if you can relate to that in any way, you can understand something of the emotion in Hebrew, uh, Hebrews, Hosea chapter 1, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. If you've had that experience raising a child, and how agonizing it can be, and frustrating it can be, and angering it can be at times, you know the emotion that God is experiencing here in Hosea chapter 11. What had God done? Again, He had called His Son out of Egypt. He had delivered them. He had set them free. He had provided for them. He had protected them. What more could He have done? If you're ever tempted to blame someone you know who is the parent of a rebel, you might want to rethink that position. Uh, while some parents are certainly guilty, some are not. Remember this scenario here that we're looking at in Hosea, if you're ever tempted to blame a parent. Here was God, the perfect parent, and yet His people were determined not to listen to Him. They were determined to go their own way. It's always been a bit of a mystery to me. I've known of parents that didn't seem to have an ounce of interest in God and in the things of God. And yet they might end up with kids who were leaders in the youth group and going to missions and ministry. And then you look at another couple and you think of their devotion to the Lord. Just how utterly devoted they are to God. Maybe some of the godliest people in the church. And their kids turn out to be some of the wildest. <laughs> There's a mystery, right? Again, here was none other than God Himself. God Himself as the parent. You couldn't have a more perfect parent than Him. And yet, look at what Israel is doing. The early years. Secondly, I want you to see the adolescent years. The adolescent years. Verses 3 and 4. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Now, you're going to see the image change here in a moment, and I'll explain it when we, when we get to it, from a father to another image. But what we see here is Israel is growing up. She's coming into her own as a nation. God's given them the land. God's provided for them. God has trained them. And the whole time, Israel is like, I'm the one doing this. I'm taking care of myself. God hadn't done anything for me. 
What's God done for me? What's God done for us? God's not taking care of me. Now, as a parent, if you have a child like that, you've done everything for them. And they're like, what have my parents done? They've done nothing for me. What do you want to say to them? You ungrateful child, right? You ungrateful child. How dare you? God is saying, I'm the one who's done everything for them to, to help them, to establish them so that they could succeed as a nation in life. And yet, they won't even recognize me. Personally, I just get the image here of adolescence, right? Again, it's the teenagers. Adolescents. It's like the parents are the bane of their existence, and yet the kids don't realize that without the parents, they'd be living in a tent on the street or something, wouldn't they? Now, as I mentioned, we have an image that changes. It goes from talking about God as a parent at the beginning of the chapter to verse 4. It's describing God as the perfect shepherd. Not only the perfect father, but the perfect shepherd. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Instead of dragging his animals into the barn at the end of the day, putting ropes and bands on an animal and dragging that animal in. You get the animal into the barn, maybe a, if, if it's a bad shepherd, a bad owner. Once you get the animal dragged into the barn, you beat it with a leather strap. Maybe you don't even feed the animal or give it water. <clears throat> God, on the other hand, is the perfect shepherd who has led them. He's not dragged them, but he's led them with cords from the field. He gets the animal back to the barn. He lifts the cords off of it, takes the yoke off gently. He gives the animal fresh water, maybe rubs it down, speaks kindly to it. That's how God has been with them. He's led them. He's provided for them. He's been gentle and kind. And then the picture of a father again. Lifting a child up and kissing the child on the cheek. That's how God's been. And yet, despite the fact he's been a perfect father, the perfect shepherd, they've turned on him. Or like an animal that responds to kindness by running off. An animal you do everything for it, and in spite of that, it runs off. It won't stay home, regardless of how good you've been to it. That's how Israel has been. Gomer, regardless of Hosea's love and provision, what did she do? She pursued other lovers. And Hosea had to go and find her and buy her back. Israel has been like Gomer. And so thirdly, we move into a scenario of tough love. Tough love, verses 5 to 7. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. 
because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. So going back to the image of the parent again and the rebellious child, what what might a parent eventually do? Give them a smackdown. Give them a smackdown. <laughs> the third point here is what? Tough love. Tough love. Exactly. God is saying this is all about to change. Like a parent that finally says enough. Enough is enough. Something's got to give. Or like a spouse that finally says to a cheating spouse, enough. You've had chance after chance. God basically says in verse 5, you don't like the life that I've given you. You don't like the freedom that you've had and all the provision I've given you. Fine. You're going back into bondage. You're going back into bondage. You don't like my care for you? And, he used, and Egypt is used here in verse 5 as a symbol of their former days when they were in bondage. It's not going to be Egypt this time. It goes on to say who it's going to be. Who's it going to be? Assyria. Assyria. It's going to be Assyria for the northern kingdom. But again, the bondage is going to remind them of when they were in bondage in Egypt. And in verse 7, God points out that His people have just been giving Him what? Lip service. That's all. That's all their worship and devotion has been. It's just been, it's just been lip service. But now God is going to send Assyria to judge them. First it will be Assyria for the northern kingdom. Then it will be Babylon for the people of Judah. And you know what? Assyria and Babylon, respectively, those are going to be places where they can have all the false gods and idols they crave. In fact, they're going to get sick of idols in those foreign countries. But they're going to, they want idols, they want false gods. God's going to, He's going to give them a boatload of idols and false gods. And you know what? Those false gods, those idols, aren't going to be able to do one iota of anything to help. So God's saying in His tough love here, you're, I'm about to give you a dose of reality. You've spurned me at every turn. I'm about to give you a dose of reality. But yet, fourthly, I want you to see mercy. Mercy. Verse 8. I'm reading down through verse 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admon? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. 
They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Mercy. As bad as it's gotten, God lets them know that there's going to be a limit to their discipline. It's going to be a limit. Go back to the analogy with the kids again. If you saw a kid of yours go that rebellious way, and yet, like the prodigal son in Luke 15, they came back, what would you do? You welcome them back home. And here's God saying, His judgment whereby He turns His people out to go their own way, He's going to see to it that they come back home. God in the sovereign is going to see to it that a remnant survives and a remnant returns. In verse 8, he declares that he's not going to treat them like Adma and Zeboim. What are those two cities? You remember that from your Genesis history? What are those two cities? Those two cities were destroyed by God completely along with Sodom and Gomorrah. Two cities that were near Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did God do to those two cities? He totally, completely wiped them out in His judgment. They were no more. They, they didn't exist anymore. They were gone. It was judgment without mercy. Just the way unbelievers will experience God's judgment someday. Judgment without mercy. But God is anguishing here. He's saying, how could I do that to you? God says, I won't do you that way. My heart is stirred. My compassion is stirred. I, I can't just give up on you like that and wipe you out where you don't have any kind of future or hope. Somebody says, well, why not, God? Why not just wipe them out? Do it. Strike them all dead. Be done with them. And God says, no, I won't do that. Why? Because I'm God and not a man. I'm God and not man. Sometimes we might be tempted to think of somebody and say, why doesn't God just strike them dead? And, and we need to remember, that's how we think. But we can be grateful, as 2 Peter 3.9 says, that God is patient and merciful. <clears throat> we can be thankful that He is. Amen? You know, we like to think we would never do what some people would. But maybe we have, just in some lesser degree in our own minds. But still, maybe we've been guilty of the same thing in some way. We just don't like to see that in ourselves, right? God says here in verse 10, He's going to be like a lion calling his pride to himself. You ever watch any of these nature programs? Here's some huge male lion. 
And uh, he, he gets up from resting and a, a mighty roar. Uh, and all of a sudden, the whole pride of lionesses and the, the cubs and the younger males, they all kind of <laughs> jump up and gather together. And they start following the big male and going out to some other place. God is going to roar. Going to awaken His people. He's going to regather them. And they're going to come trembling. Uh, those lionesses and cubs wouldn't dare attack that big male. What do they do? They scamper. They fall in line. That's what God's going to do with the remnant. God's going to bring a remnant back. Not everybody in the northern kingdom died. Some were still there. They kind of mixed in with the peoples that the king of Assyria moved in. But they're not going to be the chief focus anymore in Old Testament history. The remnant of the southern kingdom, remember, they're going to come back and resettle the land. And we know why God brought the southern kingdom back. Why did he? We know why. He brought Judah back and the southern kingdom back. Why? Because the Messiah coming through Judah, the tribe of Judah. God wasn't going to leave them there. He was going to bring a remnant back. Why? Because his plan of redemption wasn't complete yet. Some lessons I want to give you. Jesus is the true Israel called out of Egypt. I want you to remember what Matthew's Gospel does. Remember with me. Matthew's Gospel tells us that God led Joseph to take Mary and Jesus down into Egypt until Herod was dead. Right? When Herod was gone, what did God say to Joseph? Get up. It's time to go back. That the Scripture might be fulfilled that says... Out of Egypt I called my son. What's Matthew quoting? Hosea 11.1. 1. Hosea 11.1. 1. Now stay with me a minute. Jesus and those in Him will constitute the new Israel. This doesn't mean that God's completely done with Israel as we know it. Just, just read Romans 9-11 through and what Paul says about that. But let's remember what Paul said. Being a Jew isn't a matter of just one's bloodline. It's a matter of faith. Circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. Jesus is the true vine, as Jesus Himself said in John 15. In the Old Testament, remember, in the book of Psalms and in the prophets, Israel was the vine. And in those passages about Israel being the vine, it was usually pointed out how Israel had failed in that role. But Jesus says, I am the true vine. 
And we know He won't disappoint or fail. And so Jesus and those who come to Him are the people of God now. Jews, as they exist now, will only be a part of the true Israel of God as they come to faith in Jesus. Folks, this is not replacement language. It is fulfillment language. We're not talking about replacement theology where the church replaces Israel. The church is the Israel of God made up of Jews and Gentiles. What we're talking about is fulfillment. God isn't building a family, His family, apart from Jesus. There's not two olive trees in Romans 11. There's one olive tree. One family of God. And the natural branches were broken off because of their unbelief. And new branches have been grafted in because of faith. Paul is saying Gentiles who have come to Jesus are those new branches grafted in. But Paul says to them, don't go strutting your stuff against the Jews saying we're now God's family because just as you Gentiles were grafted in by grace, God's able to graft in the natural branches again and He's doing so even now and He'll continue to do so until the end. Because the olive tree is going to be complete one day. It's going to be complete consisting of natural branches grafted back in and unnatural branches that have been grafted in. The church made up of Jews and Gentiles. The family of God. One family. Not two. One family. Those who have come to God by faith in Christ. Second lesson, we are to recognize that apart from Jesus, we are nothing and can do nothing. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, as James says in James 1.17. Again, remember in Hosea 11, they had ignored or forgotten the fact it was God who had led them, God who fed them, God who provided for them. And they were blind to it. They were like adolescents who turn on their parents and seem to forget that their parents have given them everything. Let's not be like ungrateful adolescents. Apart from Jesus, we're nothing and can do nothing. Anything good in your life? Guess what? It's because of Him. His amazing grace. Third lesson, God's judgment is redemptive in its ultimate purposes. God disciplines and judges His children, but it's that we might wake up and change and come back to Him. God's judgment is redemptive in its ultimate purposes. And then lastly, 
when it comes to God's judgment and discipline of those who are His children, there's always mercy. There's always mercy. If there weren't, we would have no hope of a future. Comments? Questions? God's judgment is redemptive in its ultimate purposes. God disciplines and judges His children, but it is that we might wake up and change and come back to Him. Yeah. Yeah, Abraham. Yep. So Ur of the Chaldeans. Yep. And uh you spoke earlier about uh sovereignty. And I think about you know the promise that was yet come through the southern tribe and mm -hmm. uh, the fact that um, God is not going to express one aspect of his character at the expense of another aspect of his character. Yes. And uh, would we have had the wherewithal to restrain ourselves, which I think is why you put me I'm not man. Right. You know, but I mean, as I Right. I, I can't comprehend yeah. that kind of restraint and compassion and love and all these things that are meant make up God. Sure. But that's an excellent point Rick is making about the, the picture of God's nature we see here. Um, theologians talk about the simplicity of God and because of negative connotations we have today to the word simplicity, now instead of talking about the simplicity of God, they talk about the unity of God. And what they're talking about is what we don't want to do is just pull out one attribute of God and run with that to the exclusion of other attributes. In Hosea 11, you see judgment balanced with what? God's judgment, His holiness, His righteous anger against sin, and His judgment of sin balanced with another attribute, which is what? His love. Love and kindness and benevolence. And as you're saying in this chapter, we want to see both of those at work. Instead of just concentrating on one to the exclusion of the other, we really see both of them at work here. Yeah. 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 Richard? A lot of people are, are saying that the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God. Because like you're saying, it's... Uh, but you see all the attributes in this uh, chapter 11 and in the Old Testament, you see attributes of God also in the, in the New Testament. And I was just thinking of uh, Elijah, he was kind of acting dumb, and God said, stand before me, Elijah, and uh, I'd be scared to death because all of a sudden there was a big wind, and then and God wasn't there going to speak to him like that. And then there was a big earthquake, and there was a big fire. And God wasn't in the earthquake or the fire, but he was in a still small boat. And he spoke to uh, 
uh, Elijah, you know, and there's, there's a lot of instances in the, in the New Testament, I was thinking of uh, uh, John 3.17, where God sent his son not into the world that could condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And yet in John 3.36, it says, He that has the Son has life, he that has not the Son has not life, but the wrath of God. So you see that in both the New and the Old Testament, yes. a lot of people just think, oh, you know, that's the Old Testament, and that's a different God. You know, they really think that God's just going to throw the hammer on you in the Old Testament. Right. You, know, and, uh, you see, this sure. is a great, uh, a great chapter to kind of like say, no, Got a lot of different attributes are in the new animal. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Same God. And you see all of his attributes expressed in, in both testaments or covenants. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Great. Yeah.